Hello, and welcome to This Is Modern Rock. I'm your host, Will Westerkow. I know that the show disappeared for a little while, so before we get started, I just want to give a big thanks to all my listeners who've stuck around with the show, despite its irregular release schedule. And I also want to give a double big thank you to all of my listeners who have written to me during the last year or so. Hearing kind words and cool music stories from all of you is truthfully a big part of what keeps this show going. For those of you who are new to the show, here's the deal. This show is all about the Billboard Modern Rock Charts. Each episode, I invite a guest to join me as we listen to four songs that reached their peak chart position during a particular month. Now, here's my one big ask for the entire season. If you all like this show, please consider giving us a positive review on whatever platform it is that you use to listen to podcasts. The reason I'm asking this is because I've been working really hard to bring exciting guests in for some upcoming episodes, not just people with strong feelings about music, but people who are actually involved in the creation of some of these songs that we're listening to. And more positive reviews means more clout for me, which in turn makes it a little easier for me to get extra cool guests on the show. So thank you, thank you, thank you in advance. And without further ado, welcome to 1992. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by John Easdale, the lead singer and primary songwriter for the band Dramarama. Hi, John. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Mr. Will. Yeah, of course. I'm glad you could join me. Normally, this is where I'd interview you a little bit and ask you some questions about your band. But since I have a feeling we're going to be talking about Dramarama a little later on in the episode, let's just jump right into 1992. At the start of 1992, the number one movie in America was The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. The number one song on the pop charts was Michael Jackson's Black or White. And Jeffrey Dahmer pleaded guilty but insane to 15 counts of first-degree murder. I never saw The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, but uh, I do remember Mr. Dahmer, and I do remember that Michael Jackson song. Yeah, you know... I don't think I ever saw The Hand That Rocks the Cradle either. I saw most movies that came out around that time, but somehow I missed that one. Well, we're going to be looking at the modern rock charts today. Generally speaking, we look at every song that hit number one on the charts, as well as other songs of interest. But the number one song for the entire month of January 1992 is U2's Mysterious Ways, a song that we already heard on this show. And the number two song throughout this month continues to be Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit. We've heard that one as well. So we're going to have to go all the way down to number three to hear a new song. And the song we're going to hear is by a band called The Ocean Blue. John, do you, do you know anything about The Ocean Blue? I believe they're from Pennsylvania. And I used to think they sounded a little bit like Echo and the Bunny Men, but they were American. Yeah, I think that sums it up pretty well. This band is from Hershey, Pennsylvania, or somewhere around there. They were formed in the mid-80s, while the band members were still in junior high school. And we've actually heard a song from this band before, a couple seasons back. But today we're going to hear something from their second album, Cerulean. And I read an interview with the Ocean Blues lead singer, David Scheltzel, where he said, for this album... They were less interested in songwriting and more interested in soundscapes than on their previous album. And specifically, he said that they were listening to a lot of Roxy music and Cocteau Twins. 
and using that as an influence here. So be on the listen out for that. We're going to hear the first single from the album. It's called Ballerina Out of Control. And here it is. I find it so What'd you think? It was good for what it was, you know. Uh, I don't remember hearing it on the radio, but I don't know that they got a lot of love in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. I remember hearing about them and, and hearing their music, although not maybe not necessarily that song. But that's pretty much what I remember them sounding like. I don't want to say anything negative about anybody else's music, so it's got a good beat and you can dance to it, I guess. And it, it was, it was okay. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think it's pleasant enough. Uh, it's reasonably memorable. It's probably on the wimpier side of the type of music that really gets me excited. But you had mentioned that you thought they had sounded like Echo and the Bunnymen. And while I definitely hear that on their first album, I think that with this one, rather than sounding derivative, they sound more influenced by. So I think they're coming into their own. They're developing their own sound. And that, for me, is a big step up. They still sound like they wish they were from England. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, you know, it's the influences, you know. I don't hear Roxy Music so much, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I get where they're coming from. And, and, you know, that's cool. Yeah, you know, one thing about this band is they've been around for quite a while. I don't know if they ever broke up. They may have... There were some long periods where they didn't put out much material, but I know they put out an album called Kings and Queens, Knaves and Thieves in 2019. I think they're still touring. And considering how long they've been together, it's kind of hard to find a lot of information about them. I looked up a bunch of websites and read some interviews with them, and other than where they're from and what albums they put out, I can't really find a whole lot of good information there. So I don't know. Not really sure what else to say about this one. Unfortunately, I'm not very well versed in their history. I, I remember that they had a few few records, and Cerulean actually, I think, is uh, like a, a an adjective for o- ocean blue, or, or you know, a synonym. Most of their albums have some kind of ocean or blue themed title, I believe. Mm. Yeah, they had a theme, and they went with it. Well, that's fine. I like that song, but we can move on to the next one. We're going to hear one more song that hit number three on the modern rock charts in January. We're going to be hearing from an artist named Enya. And strangely enough, this song is called Caribbean Blue. So I guess we have a theme going here too. Sure. I was surprised to see Enya on the modern rock charts. When she first came out, I think her sound was was unique and new and different. And I don't think anyone knew what to make of her. And so, yeah, I remember hearing her a little bit on on the modern rock radio and and thinking that's a very interesting sound and style. And I think she got really big and became more mainstream. But at the time, she was a a little, I guess, you know, what you would consider alternative. Sure. At least in the sense of, like you said, you're not really sure where it fits. 
So radio programmers just put it on the alternative station because they don't know where else to put it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this is Enya's second appearance on the modern rock charts, actually. She's an Irish singer, songwriter, slash musician, slash producer. And she started her music career in her family's Celtic folk band back in 1980. She left that in 1982 to pursue a solo career. Enya was heavily inspired by the Beach Boys and by Phil Spector's Wall of Sound. And she often uses heavily layered vocals to create what's been described as a one-woman choir. In 1988, Enya was propelled into international stardom thanks to her hit album, Watermark. But let's go ahead and listen to our song. We're going to hear a song called Caribbean Blue. This is from Enya's third album, Shepherd Moon. My first impression is that that's music for getting a massage to and not for listening to on rock radio. That being said, it's very distinct, and I think I only needed to hear about two seconds of it before I knew it was Enya. So I'll always give props to any artist who has their own distinct style and sound and is following their muse. I agree 100%. Like, I liked Orinoco Flow a lot. I liked the, the fact that it didn't sound like anything else I'd ever heard before. And this sounds like that, kind of, you know. So she, she developed a sound of her own and, and stuck with it, you know. So I, I don't discredit her for that, you know. She uh, had tremendous success with that Orinoco flow, and she, she kept going. They used to call this new age, and, and I was just looking while, while we were listening. I, I don't know if they still have a new age Grammy, but she was nominated, and I think she won the best new age single or something. So definitely fits into that getting a massage or the, or the crystal store or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I liked hearing it again. I, I remember when it came out thinking, oh, that sounds like her other song. Maybe this one's a bit less memorable, but similar, yeah. You know, I always thought of Enya as being a one-hit wonder because I only knew the one song, Orinoco Flow, and I've heard it many, many times. But her success certainly didn't stop there. Enya is Ireland's best-selling solo artist of all time, and she is Ireland's second best-selling overall artist of all time behind U2. And she's sold 75 million albums worldwide, which is mind-boggling. Yeah, that's nothing to sneeze at, is it? No, and her success even continued. Her best-selling album didn't come out until 2000, and it sold 16 million albums worldwide. Wow. So, yeah. Alternative radio really was a a melting pot for all kinds of things that didn't fit into the other niches of of radio, whether it was country or, or, or rock or what I guess they would call urban back then. You know, sure. It was a place where they could, where something could get, get a foothold. But that obviously went far beyond that, and, and you know, just blew up and got huge. Yeah. So 
I did find out a couple things about Enya that I thought were worth mentioning, just to wrap things up. Enya apparently lives in a castle, like an actual castle, and she has both a species of fish and an asteroid named after her. Wow. I mean, that says a lot right there. If you have fans that love you so much that they're willing to name new discoveries after you. There you go. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to move down the charts just a little bit, and we're going to hear from a band called Dramarama. Never heard of them. Dramarama, your band started in New Jersey in 1982. That is correct. And early on, your band released an EP that did well in France, which then led to your first album being released by a French record label. We got written up in a magazine, and it was kind of a new wave slash punk kind of a, a lean to it, a music magazine called Trouser Press. And our very first EP got written up in that, and then this French DJ picked that up, and he started playing it. And uh, we put out another EP, and the same thing. He, he continued to support us and got us a deal with a, a label in Paris, which was called New Rose, and uh, featured a lot of you know expatriate English or, or, and American bands, you know, mm-hmm. the cramps were on there and, and the replacements and a lot of other bands that were more underground in, in the United States. But yeah, they put out more American and, and English music than they did French music on this label. And did that have anything to do with the French title of your first album, Cinema Verite? No, that's a kind of, it's a film term. It's what they call, you know, it's not quite documentary. The kind of movies that Andy Warhol made, just like kind of pointing camera and sure, things happen. You know, it's called cinema verite, and and it, it's pretty. It's a genre of film, and so we just use that. We the, the, the photograph on the cover is from one of Andy Warhol's movies, uh, a young lady named Edie Sedgwick, who was one of his quote unquote superstars, and uh, we were we were enamored with that whole the idea of uh, Andy Warhol's factory in the 60s and the Velvet Underground and all of that. So we were following our influences. Did that influence extend into the way you wrote or recorded your music at all? Was it like, let the tape recorder roll and go for it? Yeah, I I mean, I think everything I listened to up to that point, you know, went into the blender. One of the songs on the album is, is a Velvet Underground song. And, uh, the guy who wrote the songs for the Velvet Underground was Lou Reed, and and we were big fans of Lou Reed's solo work and the, the Velvet Underground. And at that point, I don't think the Velvet Underground were as well known as they've become in in the decades since. But uh, we were uh, flying the flag, and and you know, we were coming from that same direction, you know. Yeah. David Bowie, Lou Reed, you know, all, all of this stuff that really was kind of underground at the time, but. Uh, when we were starting out, we were more into the, the early 70s stuff and the late 60s stuff. Yeah. All right. So as I understand it, one of the songs from your first album, a song called Anything Anything, I'll Give You, it started receiving regular airplay on K-Rock in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. What happened after that? Did American record labels start to take interest? Not exactly. We um, we were living in New Jersey at the time, and we heard about this going on out in Los Angeles. So we were persuaded by a DJ who was who had started playing it on his uh, 
specialty show. He was on Saturday and Sunday nights, um, and he could play, you know, whatever he wanted. It was, you know, the, the old school kind of radio where he didn't have to follow a playlist. He could just play anything he wanted. And he went and bought this record at a record store and uh, started playing it. And in fact, at first, he thought we were a French band because the, the label you know, said Paris, France. So we found out about it through the grapevine. A friend of a friend said, hey, you know, Roddy Bingenheimer is playing your records on, on, on Sunday night in, in Los Angeles. And we were blown away that he was playing our, our record. And he invited us out to play some shows in, in Los Angeles. So we came out for a vacation and ended up staying. Wow. Uh, and at first we, we recorded by record labels, but we being the geniuses that we are, we thought we could do better on our own since we had already managed to get a song on the radio and we're, we're doing remarkably well for, for having done it basically with no help from a record company. So we thought we could continue that. And our first two albums uh, we put out on the label in France and also in, in America ourselves. All right. Well, let's hear a quick clip from 1985's Anything, Anything off of Dramarama's debut album. I wish I'd written more songs like that that have that kind of that become earworms for people. And, and I think a lot of people know the song, but maybe don't know the band or maybe they've heard other people do it because there's a lot of bar bands and there's cover versions. If you look at YouTube, there's there's a lot of other people who've performed it over the years. And then a band called um, Buck Cherry did it in a movie called a Road Trip. And it was it has a life of its own, that song. Yeah. And also this this song got featured in the film The Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4, The Dream Master, and that led to a re-release of the single in 1989. Yeah, rather than just like as background music, it, it was like part of the, of the story where this young man was, was like working out to that song, and then he got killed by Freddy Krueger, and so later on in the movie his spirit enters his sister's body and she, he's doing karate and stuff that it was a karate workout or Kung Fu or, or whatever martial art he was doing. Sure. And when, when his spirit and her body, the song comes on again, and that's how, you know, it, his spirit is entering her body because his Kung Fu workout song is, is entering her body and now she can do Kung Fu too. So it's uh, wow. <laughs> rather than just just being a little bit of background music it's it's featured pretty prominently in the film was that exciting was that silly i mean what was what was the band's response to that i think we were all you know we were we all thought it was really cool you know in fact um at at that point the band had for all intents and purposes broken up in 88 we went on a tour of france and when we got back, we just couldn't stand the sight of each other, more or less. And we were broke, and uh, we were just, you know, not happy with one another. And so 
we had, hadn't spoken to each other for a month or two. And then that was, that came up that, that, that song, you know, could be in this movie. And that was the uh, catalyst for us getting back together and then getting a record deal and, and, and putting out our next album and in 89. And uh, yeah, it was, it changed everything or yeah, made a big difference. Very cool. And uh, uh, it wasn't until our third album that we actually got picked up by a record company because by then we realized we could use their help. <laughs> and uh, sure. Yeah. So we're talking about our fourth album by this time, you know, we're, we're continuing our, our, our rise up the ladder, so to speak. And uh, yeah, we were just really lucky. So this was our second album with uh, a record company. Okay, great. Yeah. It's called Vinyl. So, like you said, in 1991, Dramarama released their fourth album, Vinyl. Yes. And this one is notable for having a number of really well-known established musicians helping you out. Mick Taylor, Jim Keltner, and Benmont Tench are all on this album somewhere. Yes, they are. They're on various songs and, yeah, different tracks throughout the album. This was the first time we actually had some sort of a budget and a record company was paying for it. The first three albums we had pretty much recorded on our own, spent our own money. And uh, I would guess that the, the amount of money we spent recording the first three albums would be equivalent to the, uh, the catering budget for our, our, our fourth album. We, wow. we, spent a lot, we spent a lot more money on, on this album and uh, we were able to hire some big names to, to join us in the studio. And we were working with a producer, Don Smith, who had worked with Tom Petty and who had worked with Keith Richards and really knew his way, not only around the studio, but you know, around the music business. So he was able to, to get these guys to come in and join us. And we were delighted to have them. Well, very cool. We're going to listen to a song from this album. It's called Haven't Got a Clue. It reached number six on the Modern Rock Charts in January 1992. I also read that it was included on a CD that came with the Sega CD game system. Do you know anything about that? I don't know about that, and I would like to get a copy just for my uh, for my archives. I'll have to look, about, look that up. Well, all right, here we go. Here's Haven't Got a Clue by Dramarama. So I like this song a lot. I think it's really good. I think it's catchy. This song has a a bit more of a rootsy feel to me. Certainly more so than the other song we heard or the other Dramarama single that's charting at this time. And generally speaking, if you asked me about like Americana rootsy music, uh, I would say it's not really a genre that I love to listen to. But of course, there are exceptions to that. Bands like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And even, you know, like the replacements have a rootsy feel to them sometimes. So things like that I truly love. And, and this kind of feels similar to that to me. Well, thanks. I, I, I don't, 
I know what you mean about rootsy. I, I, I myself wouldn't say that I was a big fan of that style, but at the same time, you know, it influences me. But I grew up listening to, you know, the Beatles and the Stones and, and the Monkees was, was my first favorite group, you know, when I was five years old. They're the ones who started me on the path. And a lot of their music has has those influences, you know, those those rootsy influences, you know. Honestly, for the last 20 years, I've been going backwards in, in my musical tastes, you know, and, and trying to discover more where, where everything came from. You know, so I'm listening to music from the 40s and the 30s, and a lot of it is roots and folk and blues and stuff. And uh, it's funny you should say that because I I wouldn't necessarily call us a rootsy rock band, but that's definitely, you know, in our list of influences. Yeah, I will say this, though. I haven't got a clue what you're singing about. (laughs) It's poetry. It's, It's not. It's a lot of questions and, you know, silliness. It's not a story song. It's more wordplay. Do you remember where the idea came from? Like, was there was there something that inspired you lyrically, or was it more like these words just came out and felt right with the music? I think, I mean, it started with just asking a bunch of questions and, and trying to be clever, you know? Do monkeys like the zoo? Are, are salesmen really tricky? Which, you know, they, uh, yeah, yeah, I guess they are. And uh, probably monkeys probably don't like the zoo. But, um, you know, it, it was just, yeah, a bunch of questions and stuff. Yeah. So I don't always talk about music videos on this show because it's not a visual medium here. But the music video for Haven't Got a Clue features Clem Burke from Blondie and Sylvain Sylvain from the New York Dolls. How did that come about? Are you Are you friends with those guys? Clem joined our band right after we recorded this album. Original drummer who was on our first three albums, his name is Jesse. Jesse was on our first album. He was on our he was the drummer on our second album. He was the drummer on our third album. Two days before we were supposed to go on on tour and work out the music for this fourth album, he quit the band. So we had to scramble to find a drummer. And then when we went in the studio, we used a session drummer a guy named Brian McLeod, who was in a band called Wire Train, just an amazingly great drummer. And we also used Jim Keltner, who is also an amazingly great world-class drummer. He's been on albums by everybody. So when it came time to get a drummer, DJ Rodney Bingenheimer, who gave us our start and first put our, our song Anything Anything on the radio in Los Angeles, he suggested Clem Burke as a drummer. And I had actually seen Blondie when... Uh, Heart of Glass and when, you know, when they were first coming out in, in the late seventies, I think it would have been. And I went in as a fan of Debbie Harry, the beautiful Debbie Harry, who was the singer. And I walked out as a fan of Clem Burke, probably one of the greatest drummers I ever watched play. And um, so Rodney said, what do you think? Wouldn't Clem Burke be a great drummer? And we were like, no, really? You know, we were that whole Wayne's world. We're not worthy. You know? we, we <laughs> yeah. But he was, uh, he was up for it and, and he joined the band. And so he wasn't on vinyl, but he joined the band right after we recorded it. And he was on our next album. And Sylvain Sylvain is just in the background kind of, he's one of the crazy characters at this party that, 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 that video depicts it's uh, the video has, you know, literally, well, I'll say dozens of people, but it's a party. It's a crazy, it's supposed to be a crazy Hollywood party. And we're the band that's playing in the background. 
but he did appear on our on our next album and he he got he got up on stage with us a, a couple of times we were we were really uh proud to call him our friend very cool all right well following that Dramarama sort of broke up in 1994 yeah we made one more album called uh, Hi-Fi Sci-Fi that's the one that had Sylvain Sylvain as a guest on a couple of songs and Clem was the drummer on that album and right as that came out our manager pretty much dumped us our label pretty much you know washed their hands of us they put the record out but they didn't really promote it in any way shape or form they had other fish to fry you know yeah so i blame a lot of that on on our own behavior we were not the best i think because we had done our own thing for so long before we got into the you know became a part of the, the the music business and became a part of the of the major labels and stuff we really had our own ideas and thought we knew best about w- what the record company should be doing you know yeah and uh, why weren't they doing this and why weren't they doing that and we used to complain and be a nuisance you know and i think at some point you know a record company can't guarantee you a hit but they can definitely guarantee you don't have a hit put it that way sure yeah Oh, yeah, we did. We broke up soon after that. Like you said, in 94, the band, for all intents and purposes, broke up for about nine years. We, we stopped making music. And then the band reunited because of the VH1 show, Bands Reunited? As a matter of fact, that is absolutely true. Now, we all graduated from the same high school. And in fact, three of us graduated the same year. And... Uh, when bands reunited came along and, and showed up, I don't know if you remember the, the concept for that show, but it was kind of like uh, uh, ambush. Mm-hmm. kind of. <laughs> yeah. They tracked everybody down at their homes or their places of business. And, you know, nobody was prepared or aware that they were coming. It was an interesting premise, but we said, yeah, we'll get together. And we thought it was going to be one night. And uh, then we played together and uh, it was fun. And then we played a concert and the reception was was overwhelming it was it was a big flashback to the future show that k-rock put on and it had a whole bunch of old school bands and new bands too and uh yeah the crowd just blew us away you know we we were overwhelmed with the reaction and said well maybe we should you know consider doing this so uh the three of us that that graduated together from high school we stuck it out and uh there was a bass player and a drummer who I'd been playing with throughout the nineties and, and they became our rhythm section and we've been doing it ever since, since 2003. Wow. Nice. And I think Dramarama put out an album in 2020. Yes. Yes, we did. It's called color TV. Well, all right. Very cool. We're going to move on. We've got one more artist to hear from, and this is an English singer songwriter named Lloyd Cole formerly of Lloyd Cole and The Commotions. The Commotions, I believe, were around from 1984 to 1989. And in 1989, Lloyd Cole went solo. In 1991, Lloyd Cole released his second solo album, the wonderfully titled Don't Get Weird on Me, Babe. This album features Matthew Sweet on bass and Robert Quine on guitar which I thought was worth mentioning because a couple episodes from now, we're going to hear a Matthew Sweet song that hits the chart and Robert Quine will be on guitar there as well. And to complete the circle, Robert Quine was a big Velvet Underground fan and he used to record them. There's bootlegs, or actually now they've been duly authorized 
the releases of of you know secret bootleg recordings that he made of the Velvet Underground when they played in concert. And then he went on to be Lou Reed's guitar player. Really? I think before he was with Matthew Sweet. And he was in a band called Richard Hell and the Voidoids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where I know him from primarily. Mm-hmm. So this album we're going to hear a song from. This is a high point in Lloyd Cole's solo career. We're going to hear a song called Tell Your Sister which reached number six on the modern rock charts. This was Lloyd Cole's fourth and final modern rock chart appearance. Why don't you come down Saw your pretty feet On the dirty ground Of Rumor Avenue Rumor Avenue Rita May Tell your sister She's unkind Tell your sister, well, I don't mind. Tell your sister, she's got mine. Are you going to tell your sister about that one? I like that song. I always liked Lloyd Cole. Lovely song. Lovely man. Uh, very talented songwriter, singer. And uh, yeah, that's a good record. Yeah. I think it sounds more like a strong album track rather than a radio single. You know, it doesn't immediately jump out at me as like super hooky and catchy, but I like it a lot. And I like the whole album, actually. And I think it's one of those things where any number of a handful of songs from the album could have been picked as a single. And they picked this one. That, that's pretty representative of his sound, so to speak. That's that's, that, that's what his music sounds like. And, and I don't know. I don't know if he's like me, but I don't write songs as singles or, you know, this one's going to be an album track. This one's going to be a single. I mean, sometimes it's easy to say that could never be a single because it's too slow or moody or something, but that's just what Lloyd Cole sounds like. So I guess, you know, the record company hears and says, eh, well, yeah, like you said, any, meeny, money, mo, this one's a single. Well, he is still alive and still working. I think his most recent album was in 2019. Here's a Lloyd Cole fun fact on Lloyd Cole and the commotions debut album, rattlesnakes from 1984. There's a song called Are You Ready to Be Heartbroken? And there's a Scottish indie band I really like called Camera Obscura. And in 2006, they released a response song to this called Lloyd, I'm Ready to Be Heartbroken. I think they're both worth checking out. Nice. Final Lloyd Cole fun fact. I discovered that in 2019, Golf Digest named Lloyd Cole as the 11th best musician golfer tied with Alice Cooper. Wow. (laughs) Who are the top 10? That's the question. Yeah, I have no idea. But I just thought it was funny that someone takes the time to rank musician golfers and make that information available to us. John, where do you rank on the list of top musician golfers? I'm not on the list. Any game that involves a ball and hand-eye coordination, I'm not good at. You know, I, I could play football. I played football in, in my early years, but I was more of a, a lineman and a tackler. I, I wasn't uh, catching and, and throwing. and Yeah, I, I wasn't good at any of that stuff. All right. Well, that was it. That was our four bands. We're not going to listen to it, but I think it's worth mentioning that I'm Too Sexy by Right Said Fred also managed to crack the lower reaches of the modern rock charts this month, right before it completely blew up and took over the American pop charts. There again, alternative at first and then jumped into the, the mainstream. Mm-hmm. 
And then alternative became the mainstream at some point in the 90s. Yep, that's right. John, is there anything that you wanted to mention about these songs or artists that you didn't get a chance to say? No, I, I, I really appreciate you having me on, though. And uh, I think it's really cool what you're doing going through through the years. And, and, and you know, it, it serves a purpose both for entertainment and uh, historical. So that's that's awesome. Yeah, well, thanks. Making this podcast has certainly been educational for me, especially in the early years of the charts. I doubt that I knew half of the songs that charted. So I started the show as much to learn about the music myself as to educate listeners. And I I learned pretty early on from listeners writing me emails that uh, some of them expected me to know more than I did. That's charming, you know. Yeah. Nobody likes to know it all. There's too many of them. Before we go, John, is there anything that you'd like to promote or share? Uh, like, like you said, we have a new album came out about a year ago. It's called Color TV, and uh, you can listen to it for free on on Spotify or Pandora or YouTube or whatever. You know, it's also available for sale at your at your local record store if you still have a local record store. But uh, give it a listen. Maybe you'll like it. That would be great. And uh, if we 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 come around and play a concert, and you want to come come see us that'd be great and come say hi well right on i certainly will john thank you so much for joining me today it was a pleasure and thank you everybody for listening if anybody wants to get a hold of me or write me a message you can reach me at this is modern rock at gmail.com have a good one and i'll see you all in february 1992 bye thanks